look at why is change so hard? Of course, we all want to work in an organisation which is frictionless to change, where ideas are embraced, where there's innovations, where all this stuff just works. But we know when we go on this journey, it's somewhere between impossible and really very, very hard. And I'd like to break it into two elements. One is about the organisation, and the second is about the people and the team. So let's start by looking at the individual. We're all human. We all have a brain. If we have a brain, we have a bias. And it's, it's not necessarily that we are fearful of change. It's just we place a very high value on familiarity. We've invested many months and years in building our skill set. If things change and become unfamiliar, then maybe I won't be relevant anymore in the future. So let's look at three powerful biases that many of you may have experienced when you're trying to introduce change into your organisations. First of all, status quo bias. Status quo bias is about investing time in repeatable methodologies in terms of your neural network. You're built to create mental models for when you've learned how to do something. You don't want to burn the cognitive resources to have to learn how to do it again. So we conserve that energy. You all know it's quite hard when you're learning something new. If you go to a new location, you have to get a map and your Google Maps and you're looking at where you're going and you have to expend effort. Once you've done it two or three times, you've got a mental shortcut. That's status quo bias. People like to stick, our brains like to stick to what we've learned because we conserve our mental energy. Secondly, defensive decision-making. Defensive decision-making is about protecting that blame-free decision. It might not necessarily be the best decision for the organisation, but we want to stick to what we know. Choose your bias. Has anyone experienced any of this? Status quo bias, when you've introduced something new, you like to stick to it? So then we look at the organisation itself. Does your business ever feel like this, stuck in the mud? Organisations also have challenges and they have their own stubborn characteristics, personalities and traits. Organisations feel often like they're stuck in the mud. Methodologies, practices and processes. So let's look at a few of these. But before we do, if you think of an organisation as a super tanker going in one direction... It can be quite challenging not let it just stop, but move it in a different direction. So organisational challenges. Back to that, looking to the past to think about the future. Rear view mirror management. If we're repeating and recycling what happened in the past, it's often very difficult to then say, well, these past practices, how are they going to apply to future problems? And if we look at the past and we simply tweak things, we're only going to tweak them by one or two percentage points, and that's not going to drive transformation. I think a great illustrative term for perhaps the 
chaotic decision-making in many organisations is garbage can management, a term coined by Mark Cohen and Wilson. Solutions and problems all go into the same garbage can. And depending on who the personality is that's making the decision, they're randomly assigned and the decision pops out. Garbage in, garbage out. And outdated working practices. A lot of our practices are still built on the industrial age, where people were seen as resources for productivity and improving that productivity. I mean, think of your sales process today, your CRM, your sales methodology. How much does that bear a resemblance to what you actually do on the role and in the job? So some of the organisational challenges. So what do we do when we embark on a change and transformation journey? Well, often, in my experience, it's quite a secretive programme or project, and a few of the leaders go on an off-site, maybe with a management consultancy, and have a discussion about, well, we need to drive change. We need to change the organisation. And there's nodding, and then we go. We say, OK, let's, let's start to change the organisation. Off we go. And the people come second. So if you think of a, a sailing analogy, where the boat is the organisation, and the people and the crew are part of the team that need to be taken on the journey, the boat has gone sailing off from the harbour side and the crew are all left standing on the side. And maybe as the boat gets a few miles offshore, well, then we'll send an email, we'll have an all-hands call, we'll have a fireside chat and we'll, we'll tell the people about the organisational change and expect them to catch up. The challenge is, however fast those people swim, they're not going to catch that boat up. Some might drown, and some may stand on the sideline and never jump in in the first place. What we actually need is the boat and the crew working together in one direction so that we are sailing in a common direction. Well, where do you start? Do you start with the organisation? Do you start with the people? You need to do both. We all talk about needing to run and operate now and build for the future. And we need to do it both at the same time. How do we ensure that we have both the company and the people, back to our sailing analogy, speaking a common language and sailing boat and crew in the common direction? Well, I said earlier, there was some good news in that we've figured out a practical way to help organisations and teams do this. We talk about innovation, and Cathy mentioned it, that companies like Apple, like Netflix, and we hold these companies up as shining beacons of innovation. But for the majority of us, the majority of us, we can't always be at the bleeding edge of innovation, can we? It really is reserved for the handful. And actually, sometimes being first to market, trying to get those inflated valuations, actually the reality is there is real long-term value in placing your bets a bit more wisely, ensuring sustainability for the future. Now, what does that mean in the context of OML? Well, actually, um, we don't profess, despite what I just said 
uh, obviously about the amazing um, invention that was the stamp uh, and all of the other technology advancements that we make. We don't profess to be first to market with most. It is our strategy in many ways to be a fast follower, and sometimes a slow follower. And why is that? Because we've got to protect the core of what we do and what we do very, very well. But we have our challenges. <clears throat> Look, we all know uh, about COVID. But what did that mean for Royal Mail? Well, we had to carry on. That actually in many ways showed Royal Mail at its best. We had to stand up a network literally within a couple of days to deliver, collect and deliver all of the test kits that we all relied on to try and keep ourselves and our families safe. We had to obviously send all of our postmen and women, dead easy for us sitting in offices and working from home, but actually our frontline people out there. Uh, Brexit, huge challenge. I spoke a moment ago about globalisation, but Brexit for us, of course, what do we do about customs? How do we handle all of that traffic? Our international market just dropped off a cliff almost overnight. Our customers were coming to us saying, well, what's going on with Brexit? Well, we don't know. We don't have a clue. Now, this stamps up here isn't to represent um, stamps in the context I've already spoke about. Very sadly, our Queen passed away not that long ago. The second phone call I got was, we've got to get the stamps out of circulation. Now, thankfully, we agreed with the palace we didn't have to do that so quickly. It was a major change for Royal Mail when your figurehead is no longer about. <clears throat> January last year, we were hit uh, by a Russian organisation, a cyber attack in our international um, customs organisation, something that we can all be exposed to. Turns out it was a bit of a malware attachment on an email. Thankfully, it was in quite an isolated system, but it took down all of our customs processing. We had to rebuild our international network within a matter of months. Now, months might sound a long time. One of our major competitors experienced this a few years ago, and it took them about four years to rebuild a similar-sized operation. It took us months. And this time last year, Phil mentioned it, we had some strikes. Um, it was really challenging. Why did we have these strikes? Well, fundamentally at its core, because 100,000 or so postmen and women need to change what they do day in, day out to adapt to the way the world is changing around us. Now, to ask 100,000 or so people to say, I know you've been doing this for about 500 years, but actually now what we need you to do is start two or three hours later in the day. By the way, that means you can't pick your kids up from school anymore or see your grandkids in the afternoon or work the second job or so on and so forth. We're going to ask you to change your lives fundamentally. Well, we don't want to. So we're going to go on strike. And you understand that? Of course, there was some national, a national picture around industrial action at the time, probably just because you're having an event, Phil, I'd imagine. Um, <clears throat> so, but there was a national picture. There was a, there, there was a movement, as we know, by all, all of the unions to try and destabilise um, parts of the, the UK economy. But the reality is, for all now, this was a change process that obviously we could not manage successfully enough at the time because... We didn't turn up for work for 18 days. I say we, our, our frontline workers. But you understand why. And I think it's exactly the point that you were making, Cathy. Are these people on the journey with you? They weren't. Logically, they got it. Logically, they got it. But the reality was that change was too much for them. We're through that now, thankfully. We're turning up. We're, uh, we're, we're delivering your Christmas for you. And um, please do send Christmas cards again. I know we didn't do much for them last year, but if you could do it again, that would be great. Uh, these are all very challenging macro events in many cases that affect an infrastructure business, that affect the people that work within it. 
And in the context of sales, and in the context of the last however many hundreds of years we've been around, uh, what I wanted to share with you really is how do we handle that change from a salesperson's point of view? How many times we've seen this thing? Uh, lead to cash, uh, sometimes referred to, I like to extend it a little bit from plan to, to cash or to renew. So, so such a lovely Chevron slide and, and all that good stuff. And I, we've posted um, a survey on LinkedIn and asked um, only 13 responses we got. I didn't, I'll show the response in a minute, but I asked how many uh, use cases, like sales rep use case, that they can take a technology, you can put a technology to support one of those steps from, you know, market, nurture, prospect, qualify, mature, close, deliver value, and whatnot. And I want, by a show of hands, like, who thinks we have 1 to 15 technologies? One. Again, remember, sales rep entering 16 to 30. 31 to 60, 60 plus, okay. The answer on the survey was also leaning towards the 60 plus. I decided to do an exercise of only the stuff I know. I came up with this, there's 37 here, but, and um, some of them are literally, the one marked with the uh, blue dots are literally ones that we, ask a sales rep to enter something, to enter data, whether it's CRM, we all know CRM, or um, account planning can be a different piece of software, outreach cadences, all those softwares that allow us to build cadences and, and nurture proactively some of our leads, content sharing systems, to, and I won't mention each one, to DocuSign for signage of contracts, CPQ can be a different piece of technology, Proposal management, when you got an RFR and RFX, and I can go on and so on and on. That's just the system of engagement, the systems you need to be aware of, um, can um, be, be business intelligence, right? The BI systems. And within the BI systems, as you all well know, there could be various experiences. One guy builds his insights dashboard in one way, and another builds in a completely different way. And it could be the same BI system or different KPIs or the same KPIs with different numbers. It's endless. It's really endless and it's only becoming more complicated. I've listed um, just the vendors I've seen in my career. It's one use case per vendor, right? And, and there's many more. I'm just trying to make a point. There's so much richness here. And some of those technologies are, are truly amazing. Yeah, they're really time-saving. But how do we harness that uh, power, the power of technology? So one of the challenges I've received when I came to board was what's our ideal customer profile? What is ideal customer profile? So the challenge was articulated to me, we're a horizontal company, meaning our solution fits many industries. We have about 2,000 customers. We have extremely opportunistic sales. Who doesn't have this problem? And uh, we need to double or triple sales productivity. So we can't be doing what we're doing. 
who are the right clients to go after? How do we get more of them in the funnel? And how do we distinguish and focus sales on the right ones? And I use here, um, I hope my wife doesn't watch this video. My wife is a yoga teacher. And uh, if she puts three weeks' salary together, she can step into Louis Vuitton and at best buy a scarf. However, she can keep the seller busy for an hour and a half showing her every bag in the shop, whilst 20 potential customers with enough money in their pockets just pass by and say, he looks really busy. I just step over to Chanel, right? If Louis Vuitton could filter all yoga teachers married to me, <laughs> they'd, they'd do it. <laughs> so what is the ideal customer profile? So it was um, some, immediately I understood that the challenge or the solution will involve uh, people. I need input uh, from the best salespeople, best sales managers. I will, at the end of the process, need some buy-in. There'll be some data science, yes. Uh, process redefinition, insights, maybe even compensation impact, and even uh, technology involved. All that is in the mix of the solution. It will require some investment in terms of buying technology um, and time. Um, it's going to become probably a new operational capability. So I'm going to put this word out there, operational capability, and I'll come back to it after the torture. Um, new maturity curve and a new mindset. That's Phil yelled at me when I didn't have this one. <laughs> so what is ideal customer profile? Let's consider for a moment a couple of thought experiments, shall we? So what is a thought experiment? A thought experiment is rather like a laboratory experiment where we minimize the variables to think and discover our underlying intuitions. So let's put to the first one. I call this the absurd trolley problem. Some of you must have seen this before. I'll quickly take one minute to set this up and then I can ask you a question. So what you see here is a trolley car hurtling down a track at high speed. It has lost all control. This happens to be you. You have a control over lever and you have only two choices. One, the trolley car goes straight down the track, or the other one, the trolley car goes left. It just so happens that in these cases, this gentleman here is a railway worker working on the track. I know the drawing doesn't say it or show it, but let's imagine for a second that's a railway worker there, one, and these are five railway workers. They got their headgear on, they cannot see you, they cannot do anything. There's two options, and I want to know with a show of hands in the room and ask the question, what would you do? Would you kill the one and save the five? Or would you kill the five and save the one? If you can show a quick show of hands in the room, I'd appreciate that. So um, shall we start with the one? Yep, how many of you would um, direct? Come on, put your hands fully up. Right, so we've got, uh, I would say, quite a large number of you. Putting the one, how many of the five? Uh, one person, one person <laughs> said the five. Okay, Lenny, did you hear that? Thank you, Phil, for that. I'd like to talk to the one person during the break next time I come there. 
Okay, that's true though. Thank you, Phil. Most people choose to turn left and kill one person. Okay, hold that thought. Let's try thought experiment number two. So in this case, we have the transplant surgeon problem. So it just so happens that these five people here in the ICU, they all need a transplant organ. One needs a heart, another needs a lung, another needs a kidney, a liver, and a pancreas. And it just so happens that in the outpatient department next door, the same transplant surgeon is seeing some patients and he comes across this healthy person. He has a thought for a while. He's like, what if? What if I harvest the organs of this healthy person to save the five? What would you do? Would you sacrifice the healthy person to save the five? Yes or no? Show of hands, please. To um, save the five. How many would put your hand up for that? <laughs> no hands up, Lenny. No hands up. <laughs> Thank you, Phil. Well, again, most people chose not to sacrifice the healthy person. So, what have we learned here? What's the moral dilemma? Most people find it difficult to explain why they chose one moral answer over the other. Isn't that fascinating? Well, what this brings us to something called moral decision, decision making, where we talk about uh, two concepts that have evolved and debated over 2000 years in Western philosophy. In problem one, most people defaulted to consequentialism. And in problem two, most people defaulted to categorical imperative. What these experiments show is a difference in moral decision making. In the first instance, most people chose to save the five railway workers. This is known as consequentialism. Jeremy Bentham has some authority over it. And the outcome should produce the most amount of happiness, as you can see here. And then in the second instance, most people chose not to sacrifice the one healthy person. Immanuel Kant, the author of Categorical Imperative, says, humans have a special dignity and are therefore an ends in themselves and should not be ever used as means to an end. Well, today we are not here to dissect these two philosophical concepts, but just to note they approach a problem in fundamentally different ways. They may or may not come out with the same answer, but the challenge here is, how do you train an AI to differentiate successfully? So I think I'll go around each of the panels and panelists and then invite conversations of the three of you, if that's okay. So Grant, I wonder if you could share your thoughts about being future ready as it applies to Royal Caribbean. And yeah. I will talk about scared, so what? afterwards. Oh, great. Thank you. Okay. So Royal Caribbean, uh, you know, if you, has anybody ever taken a cruise? Anyone in the audience? Oh yeah, people. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> thank God. I've been in some talks and you're like, yeah, no hands whatsoever. How do you describe that world? But you know, we're the, the largest cruise entity and provider in the world. We have 65 ships now, the world's largest ships. And yes, we can host anywhere from 2000 people all the way up to uh, seven and 8,000 people on our biggest ships that are out there. And people say, that's just too big. No, it's not. We'll keep going. We keep going. Because what happens when you get on board these ships is, the first thing people say is, well, where is everybody? It's just a wonderful experience. So how do you lead that? Well, if you look at what we've done in our 55-year history, the pandemic shut us completely down. So, you know, $26 billion industry to zero revenue. 
with all those ships and all those people sitting on it. Talk about shock and change. And that's where transformation has to happen. And so in looking at how do I facilitate transformation and make our teams future ready. So we'll go back to emergent leadership model because this is the heart of the management shift approach, which is known as the how of the big shift from old paradigm based on command and control to new paradigm based on people, purpose, collaboration. And that is based on years of interdisciplinary research. And I see the world through these five levels. Um, so as Cathy mentioned, there are five levels that our individual mindset goes through, but there is also a corresponding organizational culture at every level, which is characterized by specific thinking patterns, language use, leadership style, organizational culture, organizational outcomes, and we cannot skip the levels. Um, it is also very highly relevant to sales uh, professionals because I map those five levels to sales drivers, to customer centricity, and 32 other areas. Anything you can think of, uh, give me a challenge, I will map the five levels um, uh, to, to that particular issue, problem, whether it's individual, whether, whether it's organizational or societal, because we know from neuroscience, with our um, thinking, uh, with our behavior, we are spreading the ripples. And with our mirror neuron brain cells, we pick up the moods and emotions of people around us, and then we operate at that level. So coming to our questions, how do we get future ready? We get future ready by shifting individual leaders, employees, and entire organizational culture to level four, occasionally level five. I can briefly say a little bit more about the levels just to put it in the context. So level one, lifeless mindset, apathetic culture, not much gets done. It's a, uh, there's a lot of toxicity, fear, blame, worry. It's really not a good place to be. Level two, reluctant mindset, stagnating culture. People do a minimum they can get away with just to get their paycheck. So, so they bring their body to work, their heart and mind stay at home. Level three, controlled mindset and um, orderly culture. This is command and control, micromanagement. We do what we are told to do. And this is where majority of organizations are. And this is where sales is driven by numbers. So just sell, sell, sell to meet the spreadsheet numbers, regardless of uh, people and what they want and what customers want, etc. So we need to go through this big shift, what I call the management shift. Uh, so we help leaders, we shift the sales mindset, we, sh we, we shift organizational culture from level four, where the mindset is enthusiastic and culture is collaborative. And this is where magic happens. And I'm delighted to, to have uh, Kathy now is one of our business partners because she has and her team in SAP experienced this magic and achieved the breakthrough. So the keywords are trust, transparency, purpose, collaboration, working on something much bigger than ourselves. And this is where all the numbers go up. Um, sales numbers, uh, innovation, engagement, uh, staff retention, everything improves. We are really, really purposeful and we want to make this world a better place. And occasionally we can reach level five uh, where uh, we have uh, unlimited mindset and limitless culture. This is where highly innovative teams work day and night on some amazing innovations. I hope in alignment with most people in this room, at the end of the day, I'm just a sales guy. Um, the difference is I've been doing it for, for 30 years uh, and um, I had the absolute pleasure of being able to do a master's 
10 years ago, which we were the first ever cohort um, to go do this. And it you know, absolutely changed my life in terms of the way in which I started to think about business and academia and how you bring those things together. So I was literally before then, typical sales guy or a sales leader, my life driven um, 90 days at a time um, you know, driving my wife insane by the fact that, you know, for the last three weeks of a quarter, um, I was just a, a living robot, basically. Um, so I, I think that, you know, what I've learned about Future Ready um, and what I'm trying to do in the company that I'm in now, and it, it's funny, the things that offer put up are an absolute parallel to how I've lived the last nine months of my life, building a market model for this company, getting it to understand its ICP, getting it to understand its personas, the people that we actually do business with so that we can build towards that in the future. So I think the first thing is about understanding customer and understanding the markets that you serve and how do you take that knowledge down into your sales team. The second part for us about being future ready is all around um, building out a CRM system, um, uh, which we use Salesforce and I've just put in Clary. And the reason that I put in Clary was it was all around AI generated forecasting. And you know why did I want to do that? Well, for any sales leaders in the audience that have spent their life forecasting, you realize how challenging that is um, you know, when you run a sales team, right? It's a bit like herding cats. Uh, so what AI is phenomenal at is taking everything that's ever happened in your history and based on that, creating what it believes a forecast will look like based on what's happening in your system today. And the reason why that, that I want to do that is the thing that's never, ever left me um, is that, you know, we live in a world that at the end of the day is generated through people. And in the world of selling there's about 20% of salespeople in the world that you would class as A players. There's about 60 to 70% of people in selling that you would probably class as average. And then you've got that 10, 20% yeah, that's there. Well, my mission as a leader, and I feel our mission as sales leaders is you're nothing more than an imperfect person leading imperfect people. But we exist to turn people into leaders, right? We exist to enable people to be more successful. Yeah? And if that is not what you're doing as a sales leader, I think that means it becomes unbelievably challenging, right?